This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 175. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Shana Cecil. She is the CIO at Spotlight Asset Group and co-host of the Black Swans podcast. I've been following Shana on Twitter for a while now, caught her various TV appearances, and I wanted to chat with her further about her background, where her instincts came from for investing, her strategy, and much more. In particular, I found her take on how she actively tries to debunk her theses quite intriguing. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 175 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Shana Cecil. back everybody to the planet microcap podcast thank you all for joining us today i'd like to introduce my next guest today it is shana cecil she is the cio at spotlight asset group shana thank you so much for joining me today how you doing i'm good thank you for having me it's great to have you on i also should have mentioned also the co-host of the black swans podcast which is all all about highlighting women in finance just, just well highlighting women in general I, I you know you've had you've had not just finance you know but everything so you know uh, i want to make sure everybody knows and, and get that plug out there 
Yeah, we try to, our, our main goal is to talk about interesting things, but are always highlighting female guests. We don't want men to feel like it's a women's podcast, but we do want people to um, know that there are lots of women out there doing really cool things in our industry and uh, we want to highlight them. Absolutely. For damn sure. Look, the main, the, the hardest thing, we got to try and keep everything interesting. You know, like we do, we, we, we try our best here. <laughs> you know? So, so anyway, so this is our first time having a chat. First time ever meeting actually. So, you know, before I even introduce, I should say, it's nice to meet you, but uh, <laughs> so I, I'd love to start off with your background. You know, where, where did your passion for investing begin? Um, so I wouldn't say I had a passion for investing, you know, from an early age. I'm definitely not one of those people whose like parents had like little stock portfolios for them when they were younger. My parents are not investors. They're very blue collar people. Grew up, you know, in a blue collar city called Worcester. Um, no exposure to the financial markets. I wouldn't have known what the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at the age of 18, never mind, you know, anything younger than that. Um, and so like my passion for investing came from like the accidental exposure I ended up by falling into the industry. I didn't choose to be in finance. It kind of chose me. Um, it was just a job uh, that paid me more than I was making at my previous job. And I was young. I was only like 21 when I got into the industry. Um, but I ended up really falling in love with the markets and to me, the thing that's most compelling about the being in our business, being in the investment business, whether it be as a trader or PM or a CIO or an analyst or a financial advisor, the thing that is most compelling about our industry is that it's constantly changing. It's never boring. And you can always learn something new. But also the longer you've been in the industry, the more you kind of understand how much human behavior and crowds drive everything why do technicals work because of that you know it, it, it's it's so compelling and it's funny i was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he was saying you know it's so interesting you go on tv and you, you talk about things in such a dynamic way aren't you worried about the risk of being wrong and i'm like yeah of course i could be wrong um i'm very fortunate in that you know, I, I, I understand, I feel like I understand the markets enough that I'm usually mostly right, but I have a hundred percent run wrong, uh, in the past and I will be wrong in the future. And that's true for everybody in our industry. Um, all you can do is kind of look at the situation and make an educated guess based on history, human behavior, technicals, you know, policy, but all of those things are so dynamic that things can change overnight and then you can learn something new. And so for me, that's where the passion comes from. It's that it's if you're an intellectually curious person and you like being challenged and learning every single day, our industry is a gold mine to be able to do that. So what was it? What was that first hook then? You know, when you first, when you're sitting there, you're at the desk, they're probably putting the computers in front of you. Hey, look at these charts, do this, that, the other thing. What was it that at, at any point during that experience, you're like, all right, I'm in, this is it. I'm good. I know I'm doing this. 
So when I started my career, I was a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley, and my boss required us to come into the office at 7 a.m. every day to watch the Morgan Stanley morning call on the you know, internal television. They would broadcast it from New York, and the analysts would come up and talk about stocks. And then I think it was on either Mondays or Fridays. I can't remember what it was. We had Barton Biggs and Byron Ween and uh, that group come on and talk about like broad speak, broadly speaking, you know, the markets. And that was so cool to me and so interesting. And, you know, I didn't know what EBITDA was. I remember in the beginning, right, having a notebook and writing down all the terms. I had no idea what they meant. Um, it's almost like learning a new language, right? It's like going to Spain, not speaking Spanish and literally learning because you have to and um, just sort of absorbing everything around you. Um, and then all of a sudden you're fluent in Spanish. It's kind of how I felt about you know my early days getting to know the market. I found that fascinating, but I would say that the hook happened when I finally started having clients and putting together portfolios for them and doing the research on stocks and mutual funds and reading research reports. And that is what hooked me. Like that was so interesting and seeing different people's perspectives because we had access to all of Morgan Stanley's research, but we also had some outside research that we had access to. And I could have accessed all the Morningstar uh, stuff and Lipper stuff and you'd read this stuff and, and see there were differing opinions. And then you could take that information and then come up with your own opinion and see how you did. And, you know, I don't think I'm brilliant by any stretch of the imagination, but I have certainly gotten lucky in that I have made the right decisions for my clients then and for my firm's clients now and for, you know, our PMs when I was at Fidelity Strategic Advisor, um, where I've, I've had a good instinct for like, where the market's going and how things should be. And then, you know, then I think it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like you see like, oh my God, I'm really good at this. I'm beating the market. My clients are super happy. Like I'm making the right decisions and they're treating me like I'm super smart. Um, and then you just want to do it more and you realize that, you know, maybe you might be good at it. I, I don't have an explanation for why I've had good luck from that perspective, but it certainly is one of the reasons why I continue to do what I do. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I definitely, there's always an amount of luck when it comes to investing. Absolutely. But one thing I love learning about is like where that instinct came from to, to do well as you have, you know, and have that instinct for making the right calls for the market. So what, what, where, where would you say that came from? Was it just, just putting in the hours and putting in the work or, I mean, did you, did you like patterns as a kid? Like what, what, where did it come from? I, I can't say I, I pay any attention to technical analysis. So it, it, it's not patterns. Like I said, no, no patterns. Um, there's okay. a book, my Malcolm Gladwell, I'm trying to remember which one it is. So I'm going to look it up right now, but there's a book where he talks about, you know, just some people, whether it be through just continued learning, just start to develop gut instinct. Um, and he talks about, um, specifically, um, oh, it's blank, the power of thinking without thinking. How like, right. you know, the art expert can look at a painting and not know why he knows it's a fake, but knows it's a fake. Um, he can't describe it. And, um, but he just knows and he's right. 
most of the time. I don't think I have any like special skill. Um, I just look at the market and patterns and human behavior and think this is my, I don't know, this is what I think. And this is, so I'll give you some examples. Um, you know, in our portfolios, um, and I, I have, you can go and find my video clips. Uh, in October, I started talking about small caps. Now I read stuff. I'd seen that there was some technical data that was supportive, some fundamental data that was supportive. So I was really comfortable with recommending small caps and suggesting maybe we were on the cusp of a turn and it was right. And, um, you know, I have a video from 2008 where I was on a TV show with this guy and the host at the end was like, when do you think we're going to get better? Like, when do you think the market's going to bottom? Like, this was January of 09. And I remember saying that in three months, I feel like things will start to get better. In six months, I think we'll be out of this. And the other person who was on the show laughing at me and saying, I think it'll be at least a year or two before things are better. I think it'll be worse in three months. Um, and then we bottomed in March. You know, that's no like I don't have a crystal ball. I just instinctually feel like I kind of get market trends and I don't know why I do. Um, but like even in our portfolios, we made a change recently in December from one alternative beta fund to another one, um, just with the feeling that, you know, we thought equities would continue their run. We wanted downside protection, but we wanted something that would have um, some upside participation. And what we were invested in was totally negatively correlated. Um, and it couldn't have timed better if we tried, because we the second we made that change, the markets kept running up, but the change in funds, we went from a fund, which is as of right now, year to date down 11.58% to a fund, which is up 13.10%, you know, and we did that in December. So like that's, it, it, it worked out almost perfectly. Um, and we switched, we went to active value and increased our exposure there to an overweight about two months ago, um, I want to say sometime in February, March. Um, and that's been a win. It's probably a little late, but um, it's been a win um, because that rotation really has sustained itself. But again, I'm not some genius here. I, I, I don't even sound that intelligent half the time when I'm on TV and I know this. I just... <laughs> I just I'll think I have but... reasonably good instincts <laughs> and I don't know why. I'll disagree. I think you sound intelligent. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's funny. Like whenever I think about that question, when I ask, when I ask individuals on here, it's, you know, I think about, you know, the study of aesthetics, you know, the study of beauty and how, like, you know, when you, when you ask the artist, you know, well, did you mean when you wrote this lyric, that this was it. And then I was like, ah, you know, I don't know, maybe. I'm not totally yeah. sure. You like it? What does it mean to you? It means something good to you? Great. And like when you relate it to finance, like did it result in good outcomes? Oh, great. Then, you know, sure. I have instincts. Okay. You know? I remember I remember <laughs> being in a meeting with Will Danoff once who runs the Contra Fund over at Fidelity. Yeah. And he was telling us about like one of the new positions in his fund. And for the life, I feel like it was a telecom company. This is probably in 05, 06. Um, 
And it was a huge win for him. And we were like, Will, you know, what'd you do? What reason? And he was like, I literally needed to get a bagel for breakfast. So I like crashed a meeting that was going on and I didn't even stay, but I caught enough of what the CEO was saying that I thought, oh, this could be interesting. And the question that the analyst was asking when Will decided to crash the meeting to get a bagel was like, who's your biggest competitor and why? And that, that was the only question he heard and the only answer he heard, but then he immediately went out and bought the competitor based on just getting a bagel. Um, and he had like, he invested in Crocs around the same time. And we were like, why Crocs? Like, I don't know, my kids really like them. I see doctors wearing them all the time. And then Peter Lynch always used to say like, you know, buy what you know. And I used to know somebody who used to be like his, at Fidelity, all the PMs have like a, um, client PM that kind of literally just follow them around and like take in everything they say so that they can go talk um, on their behalf. And uh, one of them said that both Peter and Will like to just randomly on their lunch breaks, go to like stores or restaurants and ask questions about business. What are, what are the kids like today? Like, what's your biggest seller? And then that's how they would come up with their ideas. Um, it wasn't like some like, super sophisticated. I do all of these charts and I build these models and I come up with ideas. Uh, they were all, it was all really organic. And I, I, that's how I think about the market. I think about it in that manner, like the logical steps and not necessarily. And then most of the time I'll go look at the technicals and it turns out that it supports whatever my gut was telling me, um, or I'll build a model. And again, See if it supports it, but you got to be careful because you're always, if you have a thesis, you're always going to find things that support your thesis. So I'm actually the opposite person. I, if I feel really strongly and I'm like, well, this can't be wrong. Like I actively go out and look for reasons I could be wrong. Like everything that doesn't support what I think. And I was like that when I used to cover strategies for strategic advisors, if I absolutely loved a portfolio manager um, or a strategy. Um, I would go out and actively look for all the reasons why they weren't as good as I thought, like why somebody wouldn't want to invest in them. Because I, I didn't want my own bias to impact my recommendation where I could potentially be wrong. And I think a lot of people do the opposite, right? They come up with an idea and then they look for all the different ways to support why they're right. I come up with an idea and I look for all the ways I could be wrong. So what are the, some of the questions that you ask when you're trying to go on that uh, debunking mission? You know, so you think about it, either an idea or portfolio strategy, any, any of it. You know, what are the, some of the questions? Because this is something that I want our audience to, to potentially learn more from is like, what, what, how can you do that? Because it's, it's not that easy to just say, all right, could I be wrong? Well, you know, how am I wrong? So what are some of those questions that you ask yourself? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, you have to make a concerted effort to figure out how you could be wrong. Like you can say that, but do you commit to it, right? Like, do you play, can you truly play devil's advocate with yourself? Not everybody's capable of that, um, but I think it's super important um, because anytime you're gonna go and, and recommend something, or invest in something for your clients or yourself, like you have to think of all the different ways this could potentially go wrong for you and whether or not 
um, you feel confident enough in why you think it's going to go right. So for me, it's things like, you know, hate them or love them, but I like going out and reading the shorts. If they have public information, like Muddy Waters is great for that. Um, you know, there are certain shorts that put out their research and I will read the short thesis um, and then go through it and be like, is this a valid point or not? And be honest with myself, like, wow, that is a really good point. Like, can I overcome this with whatever I think? Um, find, I, I like to call, when I worked for larger asset managers, one of the things I used to do on behalf of the PMs was, I would look at managers who invested similarly to them and then look at what they held. And if we felt really, really um, a lot of conviction for a name and a manager who I really respected, who invested similar to me, didn't own it, I would call them and ask why. Like, why don't you own this? And a perfect example of that was Mattel a couple of years ago. Um, you know, there are some super deep value managers that I would have expected to buy Mattel on the turnaround story when they brought in that woman from Google to, to become the CEO and she didn't last because nothing happened. And I remember calling a, um, a firm who I have deep respect for um, and talking to the PM and being like, why don't you guys own this? And him being like, look, we sat down we listened. She doesn't have an actual vision that's applicable. That is also a company that I spent a lot of time on and asking them why they didn't own JCPenney. They were a special situations kind of firm that loved messy stuff. Um, and I remember asking them like, why don't you own JCPenney? They're like, cause there's no possible way based on the financials of the company that they can execute the strategy that they are saying. They're like, we've gone through the balance sheet. We've gone through the cash flows. What they're saying they were going to do to turn around the company is actually impossible because there's no financial way they'll be able to do it. And they were right. And they were also the same firm that didn't own Mattel. Um, so looking at people I really respect who I would assume would own something or that um, like that, that don't and finding out like why they didn't, um, maybe they're wrong, but a lot of times they bring up stuff I missed or they just have expertise in areas that I just don't. Um, so that's one way, but also, like I said, the short stuff, I love Twitter because Twitter, you'll always get just people who will think every other way um, that will challenge the status quo. And there are just some topics I'm not willing to go and challenge the status quo on because I don't want to just get absolutely hammered by the people who are either totally for or against. Um, and like crypto is a perfect example of that. But there are people crypto. out there that are willing <laughs> to ask the questions and I always like to see how people respond. Um, so that's a great place to go. Um, there's a lot of different ways reading research reports. Like if you're a, if you have a brokerage account at Fidelity, you have access to some great research, non-Fidelity research like um, Refinitiv, S&P, Capital Economics. Like their research reports are available to you on the Fidelity website and you can read them. And sometimes you'll look at, price targets and, and, and ratings from two different companies that are different and then just reading why and whether or not you think, you know, which one makes more sense to you and which story do you believe is more likely? So that's how I do it. You know, it's the stupid phrase that we use in our industry is mosaic theory. That's really all it is. 
You just have to make a concerted effort to go looking for it. I think that's a good rule in life as well. Yep. One of my rules of life is if I have a very strong emotional response to something, I need to go out and actively seek an opposite view. And politics is one way, something in the media, something that is meant to be scary for me. It's one of the reasons why my favorite book in the entire world is a book. So it's been published. There's an international version. And there's a U.S. version and they have different titles. And the international version, in my opinion, is the better version. But the U.S. version is the easier one to find. So the U.S. version of the book is called The Science of Fear. It's by Dan Gardner, who's Canadian. He also wrote Super Forecasting, which some people might be familiar with. So he wrote this book called The Science of Fear. The international version of the book, which if you can see bookies behind me, I for some reason have two copies of it, is called Risk the science and politics of fear. It's literally the same book, but the risk book was written more recently. So there's extra chapters with like more recent um, current event stuff that he gets into. Um, But the entire premise of the book is that information presented to you that elicits a really emotional response is presented to you in a way to get a really emotional response. But if you step back, and you actually think about the information and like try to clear your head of the emotion that you know it elicited. Um, you'll realize that there's it, it like you can be more objective about it. So, like some examples he gives is like number of children abducted every year, like one in fifty thousand. They'll pre- they'll present it that way. If they presented it in the percentage rate, it wouldn't seem so scary. He's also a big thing of like, there was an article that he references in the book, like there's at any given moment, there's 50,000 sexual predators on the internet preying on your children. And he's a big, if it's a big fat round number, it's probably not true. Um, It's like the world does not work in round numbers like that. Um, And so, you know, everything's scary, but the market and investing and just life in general is all about risk, right? So your ability to assess risk makes you have better decisions. And the more you don't take the time to really understand it, the more likely your emotions will drive you to make bad decisions. And that's his whole premise of the book. And you could... You people don't want to hear this. Like I remember after my son was born, getting in an argument on the internet because shortly after he was born, there was some article that was done about how more kids die from having um, bumpers in their crib. Um, and it's up like a thousand percent since the eighties. Really? Uh, I, see, back to your response, right? Yeah. Well, I'm- yeah, because I'm like I just I, we we love the bumpers uh, for for the crib. I'm like that that's like I feel like that saves our daughter's life every time because right. she's pink, like right yep. on the side. So, Sorry. So here yeah. here's here's the then and nobody actually like logically looks at the information. It's like in the 80s there were a hundred deaths every year from crib bumpers, and now there's like a thousand, and then. And you ask yourself, but like how many people actually use bumpers? Like millions, right? So like, is that even that statistically significant? No. And then it's like, how much of it is really the bumper and just that the kid had SIDS or something else 
cause their death and they happen to have a bumper in the crib at the same time and it wasn't necessarily the cause there's a big chunk of those how much of it is just people reporting it more you know what i'm saying so there was all of these holes in it and it wasn't even a statistically significant jump it was like a hundred i don't even think it was a hundred to a thousand it was like a hundred to like 450 a year it was such a small percentage when you think about how many bumpers are sold every single year um and it's like well the actual risk of your kid dying because they have a bumper in their crib is like one in four million but the headline was there's been a thousand percent jump and you know don't put you know bumpers in your kid's crib because they could die um and then everybody freaking out and judging um and i remember i distinctly remember like arguing with people and, and the number one response is always but what if it's your kid right but you can't live your life that way and you can't invest that way right mm -hmm. you can't worry if you worry about the one in four million chance of something happening um you'll ne you'll like paralyze you'll never take do anything right because every single thing we do every single day has risk eating by yourself has risk what if you choke right people die that way yeah <laughs> no absolutely right especially the way i eat i shovel i get i can't tell you how many times i've been eating like a gummy bear and like you know um but yeah no so so this is so we're going this every single day Without question. So we're going down to this. Now we're going down. To, I like this rabbit hole we're going. So okay. we're talking risk here, right? Yep. So, so for you then, you know, this is something we talk about this a lot on the pod is that everybody has their own comfort. I mean, especially microcap, you can imagine that comfort yes. level or it, people are pretty comfortable with risk, right? You know, right. there's hair everywhere. So for you, how do you think about risk? I mean, well, you've already kind of alluded to it a little bit, but like, how do you then think about risk when it comes to making that potential investment or adding that stock to one of your clients' portfolios? You know, where, where, where's your comfort level at once you've done all that due diligence and debunked your theory, but you realize from there, you know, what, what, how do you think about it? So how we as a firm build our portfolios and how is a reflection of my own personal philosophy. So whether it be an individual name or a mutual fund or an ETF, pick your poison or just an asset class. Like crypto is an asset class. Why would I put anything like when it comes to risk, I'm always looking for smart risk, right? Like, yeah, this might be high risk, but it has high reward. Okay. Maybe I'm going to do that, but I'm always looking for ways in which I can manage it. So it's the endowment theory. David Swenson, who unfortunately recently passed away, sort of talks about it in his book. Um, Build a portfolio. In his case, he talks about from an endowment perspective, some of the hedge funds and liquidity alternative stuff um, where you take risk where the payout is most rewarding and then minimize the risk you have in the stuff that like doesn't have an asymmetrical return, right? So you've done your due diligence. Yeah, there's risk. You could be wrong. And if you're wrong, it goes to zero. But if you're right, it could go up a thousand percent. And you think the probability that it's going to go up a thousand percent is better than it goes to zero, but the zero probability is higher, right? So I, that's 
a risk I want to take, but I, let's say there's an opportunity where like your upside downside ratio is like one and a half to one. Like I'm not going to put a ton of money there. Um, I'm going to choose something that manages my risk and we use alternatives. We use hedge funds and hedge fund type strategies, uh, liquid alt stuff in our portfolios to manage risk. So we will put lots of money and say small caps, micro caps, emerging markets, and then we'll put in a hedge with like right now, you know, we, we own a fund called Chiron Capital Allocation Fund, which is a global macro fund, which is excellent downside protection, also does well on the upside, but that has like a very low risk score and reduces overall risk in the portfolio. So that entire concept is called risk budgeting. Figure out what your risk budget is and then manage, you know, put your money in the stuff that has the best risk return and offset that with the stuff that has the, you know, lowest risk, even if it doesn't have great return, because it all kind of evens out. But you want to put your investments in the stuff where you think the risk return profile is most compelling and, you know, you could really win and don't waste your time taking risk and stuff that like, if you're wrong, there's a high probability you could be wrong, but even if you're not wrong and you're right, you really don't get much for it. Yeah. And it's really easy to confuse error or, or miss, miss, just miss the risk, especially in markets like, what we're experiencing right now, right? I mean, when everything is kind of, you know, keeps going up and up and there's so much momentum, you know, now is probably the best time ever to ask like, all right, well, what's my, what's my downside risk here? Yeah. And, and, and also like people like to look at things and, you know, it looks similar to X. So it must be X. Like if this is uh, so many people with the tech stuff, this is 99 all over again. Like, it feels that way sometimes, right? But like, let's look under the hood. Like, could it be 99 again? Absolutely, absolutely. But let's look at like the monetary policy uh, environments, super different. You know, what's, if you look at the top performing tech names, like do they have earnings? Do they have real growth? Yeah, are they expensive? Yeah, but it's not like they they have a business, um, It you know, it makes sense. There's growth opportunity there. Um, and then, you know, when you look at valuation, like is PE all that matters? What about cash flows? Cash flows matter, right? When in a low interest rate environment, if you got really strong cash flows, I don't care what your P is, that matters more in this type of macro environment with an interest rates at like one and a half percent, you know having strong free cash flow yield if you have double digit free cash flow yield and your pe is 50 like the cash flow yield actually is a better um reflection of the strength or, or health of your company so i'm gonna look at that right and like people like to put everything in super simplistic terms and not think about bigger picture but then you also have to think about it's obvious there's a bubble doesn't mean it's bursting today. Right? Like, I remember in 2010, being with a PM for a fixed income fund being like, 
treasuries are in a bubble. And he, he was never wrong, right? But that didn't mean that they couldn't hold, the Fed couldn't hold rates super low for a really long time. You know, obviously it's a bubble. Like there's not a lot of upside when rates, you know, don't have a ton of more they can go lower. But they could stay low for a really long time. And that's exactly what has happened. Um, and PEs are the same thing. Like, and also I say this all the time, super cliche, PEs only as good as your E. <laughs> and all PEs are all based on like what people estimate the earnings are going to be. And think about it. The number of companies killing their earnings are like, I think um, the stat as of Friday was 86% of S&P 500 companies have beat their EPS expectations by an average of 22%. Um, and 76% have beaten revenue, right? So if you're basing the value of a company on an E on consensus and consensus is way off, like, is it really a 22 PE company? And Will Danoff used to say that all the time. I know I keep saying it, but he's such a brilliant investor. But he always used to say, like, I don't care what the PE is. What if the PE is wrong? Like, it's, it's only as good as whether or not the earnings is right. Most of the time, street analysts have career risk of being wrong. So they're always going to undercut earnings. They're never going to, they're never going to have them kind of high. They're never going to be more than the company guides to. Um, and they're never, and if anything, they'll probably be a little less because it's so much better to underestimate earnings than to overestimate earnings. And that's why you're seeing this, especially after 2008. I think Wall Street analysts in general have gotten way more conservative in their earnings estimates. And that's why you're seeing like this consistent trend of companies absolutely killing their earnings. Absolutely. All right. Well, so I wanted to, to take a quick step back because, you know, we were, we were kind of getting into your background a little bit. And I know we were talking offline about some of your experience and what got you to where you're at today. And, you know, people probably don't know, but you have you have experience in, in small micro cap land, you know, I do. At, working at Ariel Investments. So tell us about that experience. You know, what was that like, you know, being down here with the with, you know, in, in, in the hairy land, I guess you'd say. Well, I always found it really interesting. We had a, um, a PM there, David Malay, who runs uh, the Aerial Discovery Fund, which is a microcap fund. Um, and I always loved listening to him talk about the stocks in his portfolio because microcap land is like PE land, right? Like so much of microcap land is about like the potential and just like he always used to look at the cash value of the company and his portfolio was like literally full of companies who had more cash on their balance sheet than their stock value. And he'd be like, this is easy. Um, but microcap land is full of any stocks, right? And the amount of information out there is limited, very limited coverage. So you got to do your own work, but it very much feels like PE, right? You, you're looking at all the intricacies of the company and really getting into it, like the balance sheet, you know, um, the intellectual property value. Um, a lot of times it's about patents, like, but because there's no coverage, you got to discover this stuff on your own and you really got to do your homework. 
So his portfolio would be like 50 names. And the microcap space is thousands of companies, right? Um, and you know, when you're buying something at like 50 cents, um, it goes up five cents and all of a sudden you have like a huge gain, right? Um, 10% gain. So um, you know, his point was the best way to invest in microcaps is like you're a private equity investor trying to decide whether or not you want to buy the company. And if you think that the company has some sort of value beyond where it stands today. Um, and it also has a J curve return stream. Like microcaps have no correlation to traditional equities whatsoever. Their behavior is completely fundamentally driven. They do not follow economic trends or market trends. As perfect example of during this, this trend of the market just killing it, if you think about it from like 2015 until 2020 when the market tanked, you know, the markets were largely positive and there was a whole time in there when microcaps were down 10, like double digits. Um, and so you really have to think of microcaps as their own little world and, and do your work and think about them really on the company and fundamental level, because that's unlike everything else. Um, they don't, follow economic trends. They don't follow behavioral trends because there's such little liquidity in them. And something as mundane as like just a big holder of the stock wanting to sell it for name your reason can cause it to tank even though fundamentals don't support Like there's so much idiosyncratic risk in microcaps. You just really got to spend the time. Um, and that's probably what I learned the most is that microcaps are their own little world they have a ton of value in your portfolio. They most certainly are almost like investing in PE. So in your dream world, you're telling me that you would love to have a microcap strategy. Is that what I'm hearing? I'm, that's, that's what it sounds like. It's a cool, it, to <laughs> me, it's a cool place to be because you can add so much value, right? Um, but you got to be willing to spend the time and understand like anything. That's a space where you can be really wrong in that just because the market's going up does not mean your name's going to go up at all. That is for damn sure. That's for damn sure. So my, my next question for you, and this is my favorite question to ask everybody that I have on here, you know, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most in your career? In my career? Um, so I'm going to say the financial crisis, but not because it like left me with scars, but it's because I kind of became somebody in the industry during the financial crisis. Um, and I think it really helped me build my public profile and put me on the track to where I am today. Um, so I lost, I was working for a hedge fund right before the financial crisis, which is a really interesting place to be working at that time because hedge funds started to have all sorts of problems long before like the market did. And so it was really interesting to watch like these relatively illiquid private markets start to like blow up and be canaries in the coal mine. Um, microcaps too, to some extent, I kind of put them in that world. Um, and seeing like how obvious what was coming was if you paid attention to that stuff and I was in that world. And so I lost my job and I ended up taking a job for a small REA outside of Boston 
And the CEO of that and founder of the firm had just written a book and he was on a book tour. And so he was doing a lot of PR and the PR firm he was working with was like, hey, we can do PR for your firm too. But if you're going to be out promoting the book, is there anybody else at the firm who can go out and like talk about the markets? And I was the only one that raised my hand. Um, nobody else wanted to do it. And like some people might look at them and be like, how could no one else want to do it? But there's a surprising amount of people out there that have no interest in doing media because it's super scary. Um, and they're also probably not people who would be good at it, right? Being Doing those media hits is a lot harder than people think because you're talking about things that are dynamic and that literally could change five minutes before you go on air. Like I've had media hits where they're like, hey, can you talk about the... Five minutes ago, it was announced that X company was acquiring Y company. Can you talk about that in your hit? And I know nothing, right? Or like, yep. they just change your topic. Like, what do you think about the strength of the dollar? I know nothing, right? You have to be able to think on your feet. And that is not as easy a skill as people like to think it is. You also have to be a wealth of knowledge to be able to answer questions that you might not see coming. Um, or that get phrased in a different way. Like you can, they always ask you to send talking points. You always have some idea of what you're going to go on and talk about, but things can happen. Things can change. I, I've had more than one experience where I, I've been told this, I've, I've literally an hour before the show had the producer sent me, this is what we're going to talk about. Got on the show and didn't talk about any of the things they said we were going to talk about or said, Hey, send me your bullet points on what you want to talk about. And then get on TV and talk about none of those points. Um, you got to be able to handle it. And so there's, it's not the easiest thing in the world and not everybody's comfortable with it. I was naive and I was just like, I want to be on TV. Sure. I'll do it. Um, and I ended and it ended up being like, I don't know, May of 2008. Maybe it was that summer I started doing it. Yeah. It was uh -huh. my very first time ever on TV was August of 2008 and it was CNBC. Um, and we were talking about gas prices. I still, I have all the, I have all the videos. I've kept video records of all of my stuff, which is why I can look back and be like, you were right. You were wrong, whatever. Um, and, um, so it was August of 2008 was the first time I was ever on TV. And then the financial was like, then, you know, you had bear in March, but nothing really exploded until September when Lehman went down. So all of a sudden I found myself on TV, like not just every day, but like 12 o'clock newscast, six o'clock newscast, 11 o'clock newscast. Hey, we'll come to your house and film you in your living room if you'll just do this hit kind of thing. Cause that's well, all anybody wanted to talk about. So it's just a good timing thing. So from a career standpoint, the financial crisis was a game changer for me, not only in the experience of learning, because that's a major learning experience. Anybody in this world, you are not really that experienced until you go through your first, like, all hell breaks loose crisis, right? So I, my first one was the tech bubble, but it was like just after it happened. So it wasn't super, like I didn't participate in the run up for the blow up to like matter as much. And then, you know, there's been other little ones that have happened along the way, but then there's the financial crisis. So that was a big one. Um, and 
And it was life-changing career-wise because just, you know, happenstance had me doing media at exactly the right time and gave me that experience of which I've basically built my career on since. Yeah, it, it probably definitely helped too, you know, March of last year, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, when you go through those crises and multiple of them, it, it makes you more centered when they happen, right? Because if it's your first one, it's the end of the world. <laughs> Nothing's ever going to be same. This time is different. Um, oh, my God. Um, but then you go through a couple of them and you realize like, no, no, no. Be fine, you know, unless like, like market stuff is not the market always recovers, always, even in like the Great Depression, like it took a really long time, but it still happened. Um, there's always an end, um, because it's not just about market participants, right? It's like all the people pulling the levers, it's monetary policy, fiscal policy, you know, um, geopolitical events, all of those things can like. We got out of the Great Depression because World War II happened. Like, who would have thought? Um, and, uh, you know, it was a negative event was ended by an equally awful thing happening. Um, and that's just, I mean, we're having one of the best markets ever hitting new highs in a pandemic. You know? 100%. All right. So before I let you go here, because we're about we're about at our you know at our time here, you know I, I'd love to get your advice for for new investors or just anybody out there that is curious about investing. You know what, what advice would you have there for them? They're looking at the stock market. You know right about now. You know what 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 would you say? Prepare to be humbled. You will be wrong. You will lose money. That should not discourage you. You should use every experience, whether it's a really successful experience. Like I'm sure there are a lot of people now that have made so much money. They think this is the easiest game ever. Um, that think it's not possible to be wrong, right? You will be wrong. Everybody is, um, you will lose money at some point, but you got to keep everything in perspective and whether it's your wins or your losses, you, you should be learning something every time. View it as a learning experience and just know that this is such a dynamic world that things can change really quickly. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so much of the market is just human behavior. Like everything in the market is driven by human behavior. So the thing that you need to focus on is not like, Technicals are really just a reflection of human behavior. You know, fundamentals are different, um, but broad market trends and things that are working today could not work tomorrow because human behavior changes. But crowd behavior, like an individual person's behavior can be hard to predict, but the behavior of crowds is incredibly predictable. So, if you want to learn more about the market and you want to be a good investor, yeah, it's all those books, The Intelligent Investor, you know, Benjamin Graham, read Peter Lynch. Better? Read Malcolm Gladwell. Read Science of Fear. Read the behavioral finance stuff. You know, Thinking Fast and Slow. 
um, you know, random walk down Wall Street, those books are far more valuable for you as an investor than any of the ones that just tell you how to like build a model. That's a great place to end it. And before I let you go, uh, you mentioned two names, JCPenney and Mattel. Are you a shareholder? No, those are both uh, examples of situations um, that happened years ago. So like the JCPenney one I'm referring to, uh, what was it, 2011, when they had like bankruptcy and it was a yep. mess. Um, and then Mattel uh, was probably 2017. So I don't own either of those stocks. Those were simply examples of stocks um, that I, I, I spoke to other PMs on to get their opinion on why they didn't own it. Um, but I do not own either of them. Very good. Well, with that, Shana, where can our audience go and find everything they need to know to follow you as, as well as your firm? So uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you'll put my Twitter handle in the in the show notes. It's Shana S621. I want to change it to something way cooler, but at this point, everybody knows me as that. Um, and I have so many followers that it, I can't change my handle because um, people won't know how to find me. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, finance underscore queen 2020. That's a nod to the fact that I have done pageants for most of my life. Um, and obviously you can find me in LinkedIn by name. I would say you have a better chance of connecting with me on Twitter or Instagram uh, than on LinkedIn, but that's where you can find me. My firm is also available on Twitter at Spotlight Wealth and then LinkedIn Spotlight Asset Group. Very good. Shana, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next chat. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E -E at FriedmanLLP.com.